This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Investors Roundtable. This is actually, this is episode number seven. How we got to seven and I finally put a wave behind me? I don't know, but uh, thank you all for joining us. My, my, I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and uh, I'm, I'm barely here. We just finished our, our virtual conference and I'm just very thankful that you're joining us and also all my panelists here that are joining us for this, uh, for, for this episode. Uh, going, uh, I'm going to go counterclockwise here. We got Adrian Day from Adrian Day Asset Management. We got yep. Alex Rubel-Kava, who is the managed partner, co-founder of Stage Venture Partners. First time on the show. I, I hope it's not his last, but let's try and make sure of that. And, uh, and Stephen Keel, of course, from Arquitos Capital. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me as usual. Thank you. Thank you. As usual. As usual, that was that was a weird. That was well, a now weird, you're seven usual. in. You know, I feel like people it, are like everything feels Angel. just as, as yeah. usual now. You know, right? Like it's Angel just of ideas like, has one now, and you know we've got the got the Toby Carlisle has his all the time here. So now we're seven episodes in. It's usual. I mean, I'm just trying to make a little niche or niche. This is something that has been actually asked on Twitter. We're not totally sure which it is yet, but it you know I figured I figured we're carving it in, right? I mean. You know, we answered the big questions at some points. I don't, but you guys do. I appreciate that. You know, so let's start it off. Alex, it's your first time on the show. You know, uh, we started this in the middle of the pandemic and uh, this being episode seven, first week of August, you know, I'd love to get your take. You know, how's been, how you been doing? (laughs) How's been running running your business through this uh, wild and unexpected time? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been very doable in the VC world. You know, we uh, we have been used to doing video conferencing and using Zoom for a number of years, so uh, that's actually pretty common for me. I I made two investments where I had never met the founders except for over Zoom prior to this year, one in twenty seventeen and one in twenty eighteen. So getting used to doing it this year was nothing new. And uh, I just made my third investment into a new startup uh, about a week ago, and will probably be finishing my fourth before Labor Day. So you have, you've lost no steam, basically. Yeah, my normal pace is about six to eight new investments a year, so I am on pace, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I mean, I know you don't focus too much on the public markets, but I mean, I'm sure you're you're seeing what's going on. I mean, what 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 are your thoughts there? Well, I'll I'll tell you a funny story. One of my portfolio companies is uh, raising a Series A right now, and they have, as of the moment, uh, two term sheets, and one of them uh, valued the company at uh, ten times revenue and the next valued the company at about 17 times revenue and the founder said ah we're never going to take a deal at 17 times revenue and i had to tell him i said you know there would have been a time when we would have been doing cartwheels about evaluation like that and i agree with you that it's out of market right now but we do have to have some perspective on these things and certainly the valuation of 
public software companies is kind of astonishing right now. At the same time, as Q2 reports start coming in and you see companies that were growing at 30 or 40% a year on the public markets before COVID suddenly inflecting upwards to 100 to 150% annual growth, their price to sales ratios, which looked like they were, you know, 30X or 25X on trailing 12 month numbers are all of a sudden 12 to 14X on their current run, run rates. And that's not crazy. Um, it's still high, but it's not crazy. And so, you know, the market was, I think in many ways, accurately reflecting the inflection in business that a lot of these companies are having. Absolutely. Steven, Adrian, any thoughts on that? Have you been seeing the same thing? Steven? Oh, I'll hop in. Yeah. And I just, I want to, I, I hope some of the public market companies catch up to the technology advances that the pre-public companies have done because, you know, I've been listening to these conference calls. There are a lot of annual meetings over the last month or so with the public companies. There doesn't seem to be any questions related to them. There's something special showing up at a, an annual meeting, a shareholder meeting, and only being one of a few people there. But now these public company meetings are public, or you know, they're virtual, and anyone can dial in, anyone can ask questions. And it's been interesting to see everybody hops on. I'm expecting these meetings to take an hour or two. I'm expecting a lot of questions. Nobody is asking any questions to any of these smaller companies. And yeah, it's a little bit disappointing. And I think uh, next year, hopefully there'll be some virtual meetings as well. We'll be a little bit more prepared to do that. And hopefully these companies will embrace technology and Zoom and video calls, uh, just like probably some of the pre-public companies are. There's it's it's really it's it's kind of disappointing, honestly, how how some of these just out of touch uh, technologically some of these companies are the public companies. We should uh, we should find some eleven year olds to come on these calls and uh, on these uh, annual meetings and ask the CEOs what they should do with their lives, just like the Berkshire Hathaway meetings. Exactly. <laughs> well, there's that, or you could go back to the Clinton days, you know, like boxers or briefs or something like that. You know, you can ask anything. That's the thing. You get online, you got. I don't know, a thousand people, all these shareholders are calling in and you could ask uh, anything you want and say, well, okay, you know, I own a couple of companies. MMA Capital is one of them. For example, I was expecting a robust discussion last month. Even, even the company I'm the chairman of, Enterprise Diversified, I thought people would be asking questions. We usually have a meeting last five or six hours in person. No questions at all. It took 20 minutes in and out. Mm -hmm. I think it, what you're saying, I've noticed that as well, but it is re related to people's a lot of people's um, uh, experience with the technology, and it's, it's both on the company side, but also depending on the companies, also on the investor side. I mean, if you're investing in you know, new software companies, I'm assuming that the CEO of that company knows how to use Zoom, and, and probably the investors in the company know how to use Zoom. But if you're investing in gold companies where you typically have 65 or 70 year old investors, I, I tell you, most of them don't know how to use it, and it's a new experience for them. And people will say to me afterwards, oh, I wanted, to, I tried to ask a question, but, you know, I didn't know how to do it. So that'll come, that'll change. 
Well, the interesting thing, I mean, General Electric, for example, some of these larger companies, they'd hold their annual meeting in the middle of nowhere. You know, they'd go to North Dakota or South Dakota or something like that to make it difficult for people to show up there. You had to fly into the private airport. You, you know, there was no major airport nearby. They wouldn't hold it in New York. And so now that doesn't happen. Now it's, it's virtual and in person, but still there's not, not a lot going on with it. And to your point, Adrian, a lot of those investors in these non-public companies are people like Alex, obviously, who's very adept to using modern technology, so to speak. And so right. we'll see how all that transitions over the next year or two. I mean, Alex, I, I kind of wanted to go back to you talking about these valuations that we're seeing, because especially in software companies, I mean, I think I'm reading on Twitter almost every other day about a new SaaS model, a new software this or that, a new startup. I mean, what what are what have been some of the ideas that actually are here? This here this is how I'll ask that question. Some of the ideas that are gaining traction, and some of the ideas that everyone's like, yeah, no way in hell. Like, just toss that out with every other dumbass idea that's been <laughs> thrown out there. Oh, so we, we all have our biases about these kind of things. I certainly will admit to be skeptical. I think is the right word about anything I hear in crypto. Um, you know, something like a trillion dollars has been invested in crypto over the last decade and it still has yet to find a mass market adoption outside of black market and illicit activity and I, there is almost no technology where so much money has gone in in the service of finding so few users and you know at some point that will probably flip around because you cannot deny the the talent of the software developers who are working on crypto right now and have been for many years. There are a lot of people doing a lot of interesting work and there are people whose formidable experience prior to going into crypto gives, should give them the benefit of the doubt that they might find something. It's just that it hasn't happened yet. And we may be no closer to it than we were five years ago. I don't have any ability to, to see an inflection point there. I, I just don't. Um, I don't see that right now. But there are all sorts of other technologies where we're seeing increased adoption. Um, you know, one area where I'm seeing increased adoption is in voice technology. Uh, voice technology where you have um, interfaces like Siri to uh, input data and extract data from enterprise systems is an area and voice technology where you can listen to conversations happening and enable people to have coaching from literally an artificial intelligence agent about what to say on a conversation in order to help close the sale, for example, is something that I'm seeing a lot. That, that particular application that I'm mentioning is a portfolio company of mine called Balto Software, which helps call center reps to say the right thing at every time as if their manager were helping them and listening into a call. But managers only listen into maybe, maybe half a percent of all calls and people get tired, people get cranky, people have bad days. And if they had a little bit of coaching on a call, they could be at their best on every single call, every single time and Balto enables that. And Can I get that to help me answer these questions? Yeah, I'm sorry? Can I get that to help me answer these questions? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Sorry. I'd have to put in a lot of training data about golden medals, which I don't think is in the training data corpus that they have right now. <laughs> well, get your face and AI, AI words, but, but you get to say them, Adrian. You, at some point, you can, just, you can just sit there and, you know, you're like, your lips will move forward. What a, brand, what a branding opportunity. 
Oh my gosh. Oh, I can yeah, have a hologram of myself. <laughs> I have that too. I have a hologram company called Ventana. So we can do that. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, no. Alex. Oh, sorry, Steve. No, no I was going to ask about the hologram company. How, how does that work? So uh, the company creates a three-dimensional hologram that has a front-facing camera on it as well. So it can interact with people in the real world. It can pull them in and interact with the hologram. So you can be standing in front of a hologram of Roger Federer and you know, tossing a tennis ball with him. Um, it, it was used mostly in brand activations and other types of in-person marketing before COVID. And of course, there is no in-person marketing right now. Um, in the COVID world, but the company has um, another application of their technology, which is creating three-dimensional models at um, very high scale and very low cost using their core tech that they built for holograms for e-commerce product pages. So if you're on a product page and you see that you can rotate around the, you know, a sneaker or a sofa or something like that, and then place it in your own environment, that, uh, that is often enabled by Ventana and that dramatically increases conversion of, of those product pages and, and increases sales. Uh, when we have live and in-person events in the future, we will resume our in-person marketing event, uh, in-person event marketing business. But I think Ventana's real big growth market is in e-commerce. Yeah, that's fascinating. You could see the application going forward, especially you know, hopefully we won't have to travel quite as much when things open up as much. People are more comfortable with, with these types of calls. But uh, I mean, even uh, I think it was a year or two ago, Bank of America in their ATM, some of their ATMs, they created they actually had people back in the call center. And if you had any sort of like non-deposit withdrawal transaction, anything that you otherwise would have done in person, a screen would come up. Somebody in the call center would, you know, the image is there and you could uh, complete that you're talking to someone. You're not chatting. Mm -hmm you know, via, via text or something like that. And you could see how attractive that is and, and how, whether it's sales related or something else as a comfort level, just to that interaction. And so imagine though, again, you know, that's a, that's a still video to, to person, imagine a hologram situation uh, in there. I, I, you can see the application for sure. It's an attractive model. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what's interesting, one of the questions that came in for, for today, was asking, you know, how comfortable are we in buying loss-making companies like SaaS or other companies? I mean, you know, I, Adrian, don't worry. I'm, I have, we have a big topic to get to you today because it's been very much in the news, I promise. But well, don't worry. You know, with gold mining companies, I'm very familiar with loss-making companies. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. That, <laughs> that is very true. You know, but, but yeah, so I mean, ask the panel. I mean, you know, how, how comfortable should we be? right now in, in buying some of these loss-making companies like that, that have this SaaS model or really in this growth phase and, you know, wanting to deploy these SaaS software models. And at what point should we feel more or less uncomfortable? You know, I'll, I'll throw it to everybody else because I do not have an answer. Well, loss-making for a growing SaaS company is simply a, another way of saying that gap accounting does not properly account for a growing subscription business, whether it is software or whether it is any other kind of business. Um, the person who most powerfully had that insight earliest is actually Warren Buffett. Because if you look at Warren Buffett in the 1970s, what was he buying? He was buying um, advertising agencies, he was buying newspaper companies, and he was buying um, broadcast television 
companies. And all of those companies have recurring revenue. And if they are growing at a high rate and incurring the customer acquisition cost in the first period where they acquire a customer who then they, they then have for many future periods, whether it's quarters or years, they will show gap losses. And that is as much the case of Ogilvy and Mather in 1976 when Buffett bought it as it is of Zoom communications today. There, there is no difference in the accounting. And the difference that we have today is that there are a much larger cohort of companies that build their customers on a monthly basis that have a much larger portion of the economy today than they did in the 1970s. And so we are all having to learn the lessons that Buffett, of course, learned 45 years ago and which are not new to him. Which he learned at 45 years old, and I don't think I'm there yet either. It's difficult because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is a difficult, and the public markets, you know, I, I can understand from Alex's perspective, uh, you know, he's sitting down, he's meeting these people, he's seeing kind of the day-to-day -day activities and, and, and seeing the vision and, and, and contributing to it. It's, it's really tough in the public markets, honestly, uh, for me at least. I, it might not be tough for other people because there's so many variables involved. And even if you can see the model, especially for some of the smaller companies that I look at, it has to be executed. And you know, there's, there's obviously always competition and is the right person in there? And how much contact and interaction are we able to get with those people? You know, I'm kind of a balance sheet investor first. And so, you know, I'll look at that and you could see, I mean, these are kind of off balance sheet assets in, in a way. I mean, think of Netflix through the years that they're reinvesting in the content and Amazon in the early days as well. And looking back, it's easy to say, well, obviously, you know, you look back and, and there's a survivorship bias, but these companies, uh, they had visionary leaders and they had a, a model that was set out for 20 years in the future. And looking back, it's easy to say, of course, these were going to be successes. But as someone who, like me, is maybe stuck in the Ben Graham model, gosh, it's really hard to, to invest in those early days when that's happening. The, uh, it's, it's interesting that you talk about off-balance sheet assets because I, I'm of the opinion that the most important off-balance sheet asset that any company that has recurring transactions with their customers are is, is a repeat buying customer. And there have been a lot of advancements in the last decade in terms of how we quantify the value of that and how to analyze customer-based valuation based on public company disclosures and filings. And uh, I would encourage anyone um, listening uh, to this, uh, uh, this discussion to Google uh, Peter Fader, F-A-D-E-R, and uh, Daniel McCarthy, uh, who are two professors um, who are some of the real leaders in that. Their, um, their paper from four or five years ago about customer-based corporate valuation is, I think, one of the more um, cutting-edge ways of understanding the value of a company that has come out in the last decade or so. I think part of the problem, as I see it, you know, as a traditional investor myself, a sort of traditional Warren um, Graham Dodd type value investor, as you say, a lot of companies, you know, obviously we all understand the idea or we understand the basic, the simple idea of putting money into a business for future returns. We understand the idea of, of building loss-making clients for, you know, future revenue. 
one of the problems when I'm looking at some of these companies, and I don't invest in a lot of a lot of um, new tech companies, to be honest, because I don't really understand, you know, understand it. But is some of these companies don't even seem to have a model or an expectation of ever making profits. And I think you, you know, so when 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 you hear the CEO of a company say profits are not in our business model, you know, I have to scratch my head a little bit and say, what exactly is he talking about? You know, at some point you've got to make money and whether it's all, you know, wh whether you're not showing it on a gap basis, that's a different issue, a different issue. But, um, and a lot of companies, you know, say, well, we're just generating eyeballs or we're just generating, you know, whatever. But at some point you've got to be able to convert those eyeballs into money and you've got to have a plan for doing that. Yep. You, you see most of what you need to see to make the to make a uh, distinction between companies that really do something valuable or not on the cash flow statement rather than on the yeah. statement. The cash flow statement for a software company in many ways is more important than the income statement. Not always and not in every case, but certainly, I mean, when I look at software companies, I care about margin levels, growth rates, and cash conversion. And I'm spending a lot of time on that third item on the cash flow statement, understanding all of those things. Yeah, yeah. You know what I would love to ask you, Alex? I mean, this is on the peripheral about some of the software things, but like food delivery, for example, you know, where you've got what is customer acquisition cost and what is essentially the customer is, is the one who's, you know, there, there's three ways. There's three uh, potential recipients of value. There's shareholders, there's management and et cetera, and then there's customers. And it seems like in the food delivery area, uh, from my perspective, at least, it's the customer that's really benefiting there at the detriment to the shareholder. You know, what's, what's your view on a, a situation like that where there's so much competition and there's so much subsidization for it? Yeah. So, you know, I, I've always thought of tech enabled services like that, like food delivery as companies that are basically going in drag and pretending to be software companies um, because they're not. You know, if you look at their gross margins, they do not have the gross margins of a software company. If you look at their um, net margins, they don't have the net margins or cash flow um, characteristics. And so, you know, I think you have to draw a very sharp distinction between, you know, Shopify and Uber to take, you know, two companies there. With regard to food delivery companies and what will become of them, you know, you mentioned, you know, three constituencies there. There are more constituencies that I think have to be taken into account, in particular, their suppliers, which is to say restaurants. Absolutely. And yeah. if you ever want to hear just pure, unadulterated hatred, ask a restaurant owner what they think about uh, delivery networks. Right. Um, and I mean hatred. Hatred. I mean, this is like, you know, think about two ethnic groups that have hated each other for thousands of years and then compress all of that into 10 years. And that kind of like tribal anger is what you have between the restaurant company, <laughs> the restaurants and the food delivery companies. And ultimately, I think they have made each other worse as businesses. Interesting. And, and I don't- Well, I think the promise though, if I may, the promise yeah. uh, to the restaurant was, we're going to bring you new customers that you didn't have before, and your margins may be smaller, but look how simple it is. It's just an add-on. And as you say, it just hasn't worked out like that. It has, it has not. Um, and, it, and it's been unfortunate that it has not 
I think that the future for food delivery networks is that they need to take a page out of the SpaceX business model. And what I mean by that is that SpaceX often launches their primary payload and then with whatever space they have left inside the fairings at the top of the rocket, they stick in some nanosatellites and some secondary payload. And I think the future of food delivery, and I think what turns it from a negative contribution margin business into a positive contribution bar margin business for everyone involved, is secondary payload. And I think that secondary payload is same day e-commerce delivery where you order something from a website and it is delivered to you in under 30 minutes. Um, and the way that you make that work is you have to have incredibly sophisticated routing algorithms so that somebody picks up my consumer electronics order, then goes to a restaurant, picks up Bobby's dinner order, takes dinner to Bobby first because that's a hot food order and needs to be delivered first, and then on the back end delivers my consumer electronics order that they picked up at Best Buy to me. And you then are being paid twice as the delivery network for driving the same miles. And even six or eight or ten dollars of additional revenue will turn a loss-making trip into a contribution margin positive trip. And I have a company called Shipsy that enables just that. And I think that is absolutely the future that will help these companies find a real sustainable business model. So are the only types of going off that, I mean, is the only way to have that model work is to have um, automized cars or not having somebody actually driving the car? No, nope, you, that, you still... that does not require autonomous vehicles. Now, when, you know, when autonomous vehicles come, they will fundamentally lower the cost structure of last mile delivery and uh, of last mile delivery of both food orders and non-food orders and will change the calculus in a very serious way. You'll still need routing, you'll still need matching and algorithms. And so a company like Shipsy will have a very, very important part to play in that world, but it will also structurally just reduce the per delivery cost and dramatically increase the number of deliveries that happen. And they will also fundamentally change the form factor of a vehicle. Because if you are ordering a dinner order, you do not need a 2000 pound vehicle with four seats and dozens of cubic feet of trunk space to deliver that vehicle for you, you need something that looks like R2-D2 to deliver that vehicle to you or deliver that, that meal to you. That's true, but, but that's not really what the whole, I mean, as I understand it, and obviously I bow to your superior knowledge, but it doesn't strike me that in most major cities, getting drivers at low wages is the problem. I mean, I certainly know where I am, there's no shortage of 20 and 21 year olds who are going to college who want to pick up and are happy to drive their own car, which is, as you say, very inefficient, but drive their own car, pick up a few dollars and get some tips from people. They're more than happy to do that. That's not Yeah, I would, uh, if you listen to the earnings calls uh, of Uber and Lyft and comparable companies, driver recruitment and driver retention are some of their most serious problems. Uh, now, in, you know, in August of our year of the Lord 2020, that may not be the case because unemployment is all of a sudden very high. Uh, but immediately prior to this, when we had generationally low unemployment, that was a fundamental issue and was a fundamental limitation to the growth of 
all of those companies, and it will be so again once we get past this particular moment. Right, but an Uber driver is probably a little different from the kid delivering pizzas at eight o'clock at night, isn't it? I mean, one is actually looking for a, for a job. He's looking yeah. for something real. The other one's looking for pocket money. Yeah. Where am uh, I wrong there? I don't know. It's, they're all having, they, they were all before COVID having serious problems recruiting and retaining for that. I mean, I, I, I think at the height of Uber's growth rate, maybe three or so years ago, I mean, wasn't their driver acquisition costing the multiple thousands of dollars per driver? I mean, it was a huge amount. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting I, because that's yeah. a competition too, right? So the, the, comp, the competition in the food delivery is not only on, on signing up and getting exclusivity for the restaurants, but also the fact that the drivers are not exclusive either. And so they're going to jump ship to whoever will, you know, give them a larger cut. Uh, it's, it, you're, you're, it's difficult because you're, you're getting grabbed on each side of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, they're no different than like wealth managers who get paid to take their book from UBS to Merrill, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Same thing, you know, if uh, someone pay, pays you more to go to a different platform, you go. <clears throat> oh, we, sorry, Steve. No, go ahead. I, I was just, uh, just quickly thinking though, you know, I don't, I don't see how you solve that problem because you're not going to have exclusivity on those on those drivers yeah only only solves that problem but is also so it's also like the package like pre-prepared food service not pre like a not a shareholder but like a blue apron that type of business model i mean is that is that is that doa now i mean especially now that so many especially in times of covid and i think most of these restaurants despite it just being a tribal horrible relationship they're going to try and make it more efficient and and those that that packaged meal industry. I mean, is that is that DOA? I mean, not dead on arrival. It's already been here. But I mean, is it done, or or is there ways in which to make it more efficient? I mean, they, they had a spike in their Q1 numbers. I don't know if they've reported Q2. I certainly haven't seen it. If they have, um, that it, the interesting thing about Blue Apron is that on its surface it should be a simpler business because they do not have millions of restaurants around the world that they need to. Right quote unquote partner with, and um, there's less operational complexity to that. But it also appears that, you know, there were elements of faddishness to the consumer adoption of that, where a lot of people have tried one or more of the food delivery companies like Blue Apron, but retention has been a fundamental problem for all of them. I can speak from experience on that. It's fun. it's fun for us. <laughs> it, it actually, it's fun for like a month. And especially when you're like, oh, I'm cooking and, oh, I got to put salt and pepper on each step. You know, that's the one <laughs> thing I took away from Blue Apron. I was like, always salt and pepper you can always every hop. single step. Yeah, but you can always hop to another one too. You just, there's so, there's so much competition there and you get these referral bonuses and things like yeah. that. And you can rotate amongst people, you know, and friends. And I mean, for 12 months, you could have one month at a time and they allow you the, the, yeah. the trial periods allow you to opt out after that. And it's maybe there'll be a rationalization of that in the future. But quite frankly, there's so much competition right now. And even if it does get rationalized and there are fewer, let's say there's three or four survivors from that. Are you going to keep that for a year without the incentives? Uh, I probably wouldn't. You know, in Animal, in animal House, the... Uh the school leader said uh, to one of the frat guys, he said, fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. 
And I think about that with the food delivery companies because low gross margin and high churn is also no way to go through life, son. That's for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when my wife and I we were looking at um, ordering from Butcher Box because you go to the stores and, and, and they were just running out of meat and they had a backlog. Like you couldn't even, like you just, they gave you, the, gave you the chuck, you know? I mean, like, I, it's, 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 it's fascinating. Especially but that reminds think- me of my, my friend, Peter Rabover from Artco Capital. Yeah. <laughs> he has a story when he was in San Diego. He, uh, he tweeted this out. I don't, for anyone who follows Peter, he's, he's a riot online. Oh, the and, pizza uh, thing? Yeah, there's a, well, he's, he's a pizza recipient too, but he was out <laughs> in this, he walked by and there was a, a meat truck. And uh, yeah, I said, what are the odds? I mean, should I buy some meat from this meat truck? Because, you know, this is like week old stuff that didn't sell in the grocery store, et cetera. And does that, is that what it turns into? You know, you have the Amazon trucks all over the place that have spot deals to get rid of things. That's one thing. But to have the meat truck go from city to city, I don't know that I trust that. Buying yeah, meat off the back of a truck. Come on, they, that, that has to be truck. how it used to be done, Robots. right? Right? Like you could, yeah. you go, you don't go to the butcher, you go to the back of the truck. You got to get Peter on here. He's got some great stories. Oh. Ask him about the meat truck not, for sure. Not to be, not to be self-serving. We actually, you, I think you saw, we just launched a new podcast on the show called In the Market Trenches. And episode three, he goes through his uh, a, a good war story for you and, uh, with, with Gary and Eric. It's, it's a lot of fun. I, I invite everybody to go check that out. But uh, I want to change topics real quick because we have, we have the gold man himself, the gold man for the Investors Roundtable, and this is his time to shine. Gold's, it's, it did it. Broke to 2,000. I've been hearing it for five years. So, Adrian, tell us what happened. We're, we're through 2,000. Silver's at 28 or something, you know, like what, what, what's going on? What's happening here? Well, you know, fundamentally, I think why gold is moving up is, as I've, I've said this before, fundamentally why gold is going up is because of central bank policy. That's the number one and everything else to me is absolutely secondary. You know, when you've got, when you've got, uh, let's take the Federal Reserve, when you've got the Federal Reserve saying there are no limits, and there are no red lines as to what we can buy, when you've got the central bank saying, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates again. And when Jerome Powell says, I don't think we will ever, listen to this, I don't think we will ever reduce our balance sheet. We will simply allow it to shrink in proportion to the growth in the economy. You know, that's a totally different story from what we heard in 2014, 15, 16, when they pretended they were going to normalize. They didn't, but at least at least the objective was there, that they would normalize. And so the pretense of that is absolutely gone. And I think that's what, what, what people are people are recognizing that, and they are, you know, turning turning to a safety asset. And in the current environment, if you want a hedge, if you want protection, if you want insurance, in the current environment, are you going to turn to municipal bonds? I don't think so. You're going to turn to gold, and that's what people are doing. But, but the secondary part, or the thing that goes along with that, is you have so many investors that have been significantly underweight gold for so long. And I just don't mean in the last five years while gold declined, 
but for the last 20 years really was significantly underweight gold or even, or I say, or even spoken like a true, <laughs> a true gold bug or even had no gold in their portfolio. And what you're seeing is people saying, you know what? I think I should put 1% of my assets into gold as an insurance. And when you're buying an asset like gold with 1% of your portfolio for insurance, the key is you don't really care what the price is. And that's what I am seeing very, very much, if I may just finish. What I'm seeing very much, I'm seeing investors come to me, they want to open an account, and they are saying, listen, I, I, I know, you know, I've heard you on YouTube or whatever, I know you're a value investor and so on, but forget, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, Hopefully, yeah. Or oh, other shows, yes. Sorry, we do these and, things, right? <laughs> you know, they'll say to me, just, I want you to put this money to work now. I want to be invested. And in the last couple of months, we've opened quite a few new accounts, I have to tell you. And the, the first of all, the reason people are coming to me is completely different from what it traditionally is. Traditionally, people come to open a gold account after we've already had a good year. Is it true that your accounts were up 114% last year? Hey, I want some of that. Well, typically in gold, if you're up 100% one year, you're not gonna be up 100% the next year. Ah, were you really up 114% last year? That's what they focused on. Now people are not even asking me, what did you do last year? They're not even asking me. They're just, rec I think they're recognizing but they need some gold in their portfolio. And then the second part of that is, you know, three days later, they'll say, hey, I just looked online, you know, you've still got 15% in cash. Uh, I, I mean, can you buy something? They'll say to me, can you just put it in the GDX until you figure out what to buy? This is, this is a totally different, different uh, sort of environment or mental, mental attitude, I think. I mean, not to go back to something that, you know, we were talking about earlier with crypto. I mean, it's a little Bitcoiny. You know, why, why, is, why is it so Bitcoin-y right now? Or cannabis-y? Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> uh, I, I take, I take deep offense. I knew you were like that. I knew I you were like that. I take deep offense to anyone comparing gold with cannabis or Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> you know, gold has been money for over 4,000 years. And there's a reason that gold is money. There's a reason. And the reasons of gold and money um, were, were listed by Aristotle. What's that? 3,000 years ago. And if you look at the, what he's, he asked the question, what are the attributes of a perfect money? And is something that's inherently valuable? Is something that's universally recognizable? Is durable? Is divisible? Etc. Well, nothing else, nothing else fits that bill. Silver does to a limited extent but nothing else fits that bill, right? I mean, you can't, you can't buy a Renoir and cut it up and give it to your kids. You, you know, housing, well, the, house, the condo in Miami Beach is different from the condo in Oklahoma City. They're, they're not, uh, you know, they're not um, uh, uh, universal and so on and so forth. And the same thing applies to Bitcoin. It, 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 it can be a useful uh, medium of exchange but it's not inherently valuable in and of itself. It's not something that 
the, 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 the guy in the Amazon desert or the guy in the Papua New Guinean hills, as well as the guy in Shanghai, immediately looks at and says, oh, wow, that's really something of value. But everybody around the world, everybody recognizes gold as inherently valuable. So, you know, gold is money for a reason. And people sometimes forget that when they talk about pet rocks and everything. Um, it's, it, there's a reason gold is money. Now, I know the world's changed and et cetera, et cetera. But um, so anyway, that was my little rant. But I, you know, if, if you buy the argument that the reason gold is going up is because of central bank policy, I, I don't think we're, we're close to the end of that, frankly. Um, maybe, as Winston Churchill said, it's the end of the beginning. But I don't think we're anywhere close to, close to the end because central banks are not about to start tightening. That's just not going to happen. You know, they've got this stupid uh, argument on, on Capitol Hill at the moment. You know, the, the $600 a week unemployed people run out and they can't even agree on renewing it. But everybody sitting here and everybody listening knows full well they will renew it, right? They will renew it. They're not going to say to people, well, you know, I know you can't go back to work yet, and but tough luck, the $600 has run out. So they're going to renew it. And what's the Federal Reserve going to do? Is Jerome Powell going to say to, uh, what's her name, Nancy Pelosi, well, you know what? We printed the money first time around, but we're not doing it anymore. It's now up to Congress to actually balance his budget and find the money to support his programs. That's not going to happen. The Fed's going to print the money. And that's going to happen as long as the economy remains in any way weak. So I think we've got at least a year, at least another year of strong gold prices. All right. Well, Alex, Stephen? To, no, to that point, I mean, look, I'm not a gold bug. I don't, I don't invest in gold, but Bitcoin was not there at the creation of the universe, you know, like gold was. <laughs> and Do you, know, you want to get on a philosophical argument? I have, I have the perfect people to bring on that Neither will argue. Gold, if we're being, you know, if we're being excited <laughs> about that. Gold I mean, this is the, the collision of neutron mergers. stars. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all, the, all the gold, all the gold in, the, in on Earth was formed in the mergers of neutron stars. <laughs> All right, sorry, Stephen. I bad joke. Bad <laughs> no, joke. Go, I mean, go, 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 yeah, do You know, so so Bitcoin uh, maybe was in the mind of someone, but I, I mean, I agree with Adrian's point on that. And with regards to Jerome Powell and the Fed, look, they tried to tell Congress to do something a year ago, last fall, and then the president jawboned him, and Jerome Powell changed course. And I can't see him changing course back again. It's an accommodated policy. And I totally agree with Adrian on it. Adrian, I have a question for you. For new open pit mines coming into production in the next couple of years, what is the grade per ton that we're looking at? Is it sub one gram now? That's a great um, question. Yeah, you, you can make a profitable mine at, at a gram. Yeah, yeah. But has it has uh, the average uh, mine gotten down to like half a gram per ton at this point? No, I don't think so. Gram? No, it's 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 above half a gram, and of course, a lot depends on where you are as well. Sure, but I mean, that, you know, the idea of a gram per ton is such a, an interesting thing. That's one part per billion, if I'm doing my math right, right? Something like that. I mean, literally, to get gold out of the ground and refined, we have to separate it from a billion other particles. 
I mean, that's just, that's absurd. It's well, you know, it's, yeah, the first time I went to see some of these big open pit mines, I mean, it's, it's just astonishing to see the, the big heaps of waste sitting there and then how much ore they actually, I mean, how much gold they actually bring out, not the waste, how much gold they actually bring out of these heaps of, of ore. It's, it's astonishing. It really is. But, um, but it just shows how valuable it is, I guess. Can I ask you, I mean, a little bit of an esoteric question at this point in time, but what is the possibility? We'll, we'll go into kind of Alex's more, you know, venture style and type of investing. But to Adrian, what is the possibility of mining this stuff on the moon or on other planets or things like oh, that? Yes. That's no, what I we're talking about. That's a good question. Let's go. I think that's definitely going to happen. I mean, not some, I mean, gold is there, but not so much gold, but also, you know, gold and nickel, uranium. There's all sorts of minerals, metals and minerals that are in, in meteors. Um, I, think, I think we'll be mining meteors before we mine the moon, frankly, from what I understand. You know, don't, I'm not a scientist, but the, the presentations I've listened to suggest that meteors can have a lot more valuable ore. And a meteor, of course, <coughs> unlike the moon, if you want to mine the moon, you actually have to go there, right? If you want to mine a meteor, you theoretically go up there with, with ships and capture it. You, you uh, lasso it, as, as it were, and you drag it into a, a mining ship in space. So you bring the meteor to you. And there are, there's a couple of companies, not very many, but there's a couple of companies that are looking in, looking into that. And what I've been told, I mean, I sat through the presentation and the videos, and it was fascinating, and asked all sorts of questions. And I asked a question in the end about, um, uh, you know, international law and and um, the United Nations. And he said that's that's really the only that's really the only hurdle. He said the technology is there. You know, he said, we, we could start doing this next year if we physically, we could send ships up, lasso meteors and start mining them on, on you know, bases set up in, in, in space. And then you, 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 you take those millions, thousands of tons of ore, you get your little block of rock or copper or whatever, and you ship that down back to, back to Earth. That's amazing. Um, yeah. That's amazing. I, uh, there, there's asteroid mining and the like uh, are the kinds of things that people here in California do after they've had their second IPO and uh, <laughs> have made a lot of money and are thinking about what comes next. So there's a, there's a fair number of people running around thinking about that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, the, the fundamental <laughs> limitation for that is simply the cost and the frequency of launch vehicles. You know, sure. um, prior to the Falcon 9, a launch vehicle to get a kilogram of um, payload into low Earth orbit costs ten thousand dollars per kilogram. And the Falcon Nine probably has that down to somewhere in the low thousands at the moment, something like that. And when the Starship um, next generation rocket from SpaceX um, is online, and I will leave it to other people to guess product delivery timelines from Elon Musk. I'm not in the business of doing that. Um, when that is online, we could be down to like a thousand bucks. And if you think about what the ore grades are in asteroids and meteors, where we're not talking about 
you know, grams per ton, we could be talking about hundreds of pounds per ton because you have not had geological sorting through plate tectonics. Um, it's kind of interesting what the math would look like if you had the frequency of launches. I mean, you would really need launches on a weekly basis uh, in order to make the mathematics work here, but you can see it. You can see a path to it and certainly the cost curve is there right now. You can see the shape of that curve and realize it will intersect a reality at some point in the future. That probably is more than 10 years out, I would think, exactly, but yeah. it's on its way. And I think the real opportunity there um, is going to be platinum group metals, uh, which are incredibly rare on Earth and of which there are a few that because they're limited in their reactivity are not really found in Earth's crust. I think there's going to be really interesting applications if we got commercial volumes of rhodium, iridium, and other metals like that, for which there are simply no major supplies that, and there are no industrial uses for today because of their cost. You know, if you want to get iridium or rhodium, you're basically going to a chemistry lab at a university, and they're the only ones who have any of that. You're not supplying it for any kind of an industrial use because there's no industrial use where the cost justifies that. But if we had industrial grade supplies of that, that brought the cost down and the supplies were reliable, you could all of a sudden start to build that into precision electronics. And who the hell knows what you could do with that? I mean, the, the mind reels with, you know, what you would do with new metallic elements that have new properties that are not commercially available on earth today. Well, and one of the other things is um, you have offsetting cost reductions because when you think about it, you're in space, you get a, you get a meteor, you take it to your spaceship and start mining it. Um, you don't have a, a 16th century church, but you've got to move. You don't have a village, but you've got to rehouse. You don't have a bunch of environmentalists saying, you know, you're polluting the water on my spaceship. Um, so you don't have all of those sort of costs, which for a mining company these days are incredibly high costs. If you amortize them, you know, we don't think of those as costs because from the day they start mining, everybody starts talking about our operating costs. But if you think about the <laughs> seven years for a gold mine, or maybe as much as 30 years for a big copper mine, but you've had to put in to going through the, to the development and licensing and permitting and you know environmental stages those costs are just enormous and of course that's why mining companies don't have much of a return on capital because you know they're always raising money and um uh you know the projects even a good project often doesn't actually recover its total total costs of discovery permitting but they all say so they have a tight share structure <laughs> Sorry, I love, that, oh. I love that that phrase from the mining company presentations. We have a tight shareholder structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I think. But 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 the other issue that people really want, a lot of the people I've talked to, want clarification on is what exactly is is the law. You know, I mean, if I send my spaceship up to, and I mean, as I'm being very simple here, of course, but you've got this mining platform in in space, and you send the ship up and lasso the meteor is russia or china just going to say well listen that doesn't belong to you anymore i i mean i don't know there's there's obviously a lot of legal issues that need resolved i mean how do you even how do you even conceive of you know that's my meteor no th this is this is the u.s meteor no this is the, the israel meteor like i right. yeah i remember doing but from my point of view 
you know, that's that's years out and isn't going to affect isn't going to affect you know investing in the companies you know for the next year or two anyway. Well, do you think something having to do with the price of gold right now? I mean, I don't think this isn't really a mainstream point that I'm seeing, but just because I, I mean, I interviewed especially right now. I'm doing a ton of interviews with junior mining companies and a lot of exploration going on. And this is a point that Brent Cook made many times is that there's not a lot of at surface discoveries. You know, it's a lot of really deep drill holes, you know, not a lot of open pit stuff, you know, so finding those new district scale, you know, bonanza discoveries is just not what it once was. So with the capital costs going up, you know, they're now, especially now being a greater demand for protecting your portfolio, you know, I mean, is that maybe having to do with it a little bit? I know that's, like I said, I don't think that's something that's talked about very much in the mainstream. You mean, it, is, is that something that makes people more interested in, <laughs> more interested in asteroid mining? Sorry, I'm, I'm picking up my meteor right now that I'm I know, invested. I know. And that was, I, I, got, I got sidetracked with, with Steve. That's wonderful. But, well done. <laughs> that um, was good. But I yeah, wish I knew no. how to do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look, the, 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 the basic issue at the moment is that it's very, very difficult to find gold. And it's very, very difficult, increasingly difficult to find a major deposit. And you either have to go to deeper and deeper, more and more marginal, or politically more unstable places. Um, now, having said that, you know, in 1960, most people would have said the same thing. And then, of course, they discovered the Carlin trend in Nevada, which, um, and at my age, 1960 isn't that long ago. That's when I was listening to Rolling Stones and Beatles. Um, Nevada was considered but, a politically unstable uh, district at the time. I'm sorry? <laughs> I would say was Nevada cons considered politically unstable at the time? Oh, no, I, I, I don't think so. It was considered just... <laughs> There's a lot of mobs, right? A lot of mobsters. A lot of mobsters, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but no, your, your, your point is true. I mean, if you look at... If, if you look over the last sort of 50 years or whatever, the peak of discovery, the peak of discovery was 1996, right? So for 25 years, we've had less and less gold discovered. And yet if you look at the exploration budgets for gold, they've gone up and down, of course, that we were spending more money in 2010-11 when gold was at 1900, we were spending less money 2014-15 after it collapsed. But by and large, the budgets have, have remained relatively stable. That was we're still spending as much money looking for new deposits as we were 25 years ago, but we're simply not finding them. And more important, and the trend is, is I mean, they go up and down, obviously. You, you make a discovery, you know, one year, it, it, there it is. And you might only make three discoveries that year. So, you, you know, the numbers are small. So one discovery makes a difference. So, so it's bumpy, but there's no, there's no getting away from the 25 year trend line is down, but even more significant is the big deposits are fewer and fewer and fewer. Company like Newman, for example, or Goldfields or Barrick, they want, they want a deposit with three to 5 million ounce minimum for it to be of any interest to them. Three to five million 
And those things are just, they're not every year occurrences. They're, they're simply not. And that's, that's, of course, why you get so much um, acquisition in the mining business, because it's so difficult to find, find stuff. Absolutely. Well, is See, there any last... It's something I, I know about, I can talk about. <laughs> Adrian, you know a lot about a lot of things, okay? So don't, don't, don't sell yourself short. Well. But, but I, I want to actually, if there, does anybody have any final thoughts on this? Because I wanted to shift to our, our final topic of the, the evening. Uh, did, anybody final thoughts? I mean, I just, I guess, if you can answer briefly, Adrian, you know, you're a Graham Dodd, historically, a Graham Dodd investor. What do you tell Buffett about gold, about your view on gold? Yeah, you know, it's really, it, it is difficult, you're right, because you can't, you, it's very difficult to put a valuation on gold. And if you can't value gold, how do you value a gold mining company? You, you can only value it sort of this year, next year. And very few gold mining companies, very few, are anywhere approaching Graham and Dodd. I mean, my favorite company is Franco Nevada, selling at 78 times earnings multiple. So, you know, there is a disconnect. So I think, I think um, that's, that's a long topic, but I think what you have to look at is, is the gold valuable? If, if you, have to, you have to buy gold, first of all. If you don't buy the gold thesis, then there's really no gold mining companies that are worth looking at. You've got to, I don't say believe, because that makes it sound like a religion, but you've got to think that gold is going to perform for the next year or two, and it serves a function right now as a hedging portfolio. So if you believe that, then, you, then the companies that are mining the stuff should, theoretically, be of some value. So even though they're selling at high earnings multiples, and... I like to sort of quip, but earnings are sort of something new in the mining business. So we don't look at earnings multiples. We look at cash flow multiples. We don't even look at free cash flow because that's kind of new as well. We look at cash flow. But if you look at the multiples, whether it's price to book, price to cash flow, even dividend yield, despite the 120, 130% move in gold stocks in the last two months, they are still selling at the lower quartile of the historic um, valuations, which is just perverse, frankly. Absolutely. All right. So this is actually a perfect transition because I want to uh, put a question out to the to the panel here, and that's everyone's over under in terms of years that you think then Kodak will be opening up a mine somewhere either uh, at some point you know uh i i think i think that's a legitimate question right that, i think that's the one industry it hasn't gone into yet i mean you know what over under two years i think i mean uh look the, I, I don't know it's, you know it's, they'll it's, be lassoing it's asteroids before <laughs> yeah when's it, yeah exactly They're, when when are they going to get the loan to go lasso a couple asteroids to get us some rhodium i mean come on <laughs> you know i mean uh this i mean i, I have to point. This is crazy. I mean, honestly, I don't, and I, I don't know if this is the Robin Hood effect times 10 or something like that. And whatever crony capitalism is going on right now with Kodak. And look, I mean, I'm a libertarian leaning person and it's disgusting, right? You have to say the way that no matter the administration that has these types of deals with a brand or whatever, which is not the same owners, 
you know, uh, that, that it was five years ago, 10 years ago. It's just crazy what happened with Kodak, what they got. Obviously, this is like Solyndra all over again. And so if Trump ever were to be reelected, we'll see what happens here. And I don't want to get too political, but this will be the thing you point back to that was like Obama, Solyndra or whatever the case may be. It's ridiculous. And the dollar figures get so high during these times of crises that it's, it's sad because you have public companies that are essentially fleecing individuals, the treasury. Who's going to pay those taxes one day? It's not going to come from corporate tax rates. It's going to come from our individual tax rates. And it's most importantly, it's going to come from inflation to Adrian's point. Right, right. My, qu my question for the Kodak saga is that, as I understand it, they had made some announcements to local media in the Rochester, New York area about the deal prior to its formal announcement. And that is at least part of how the word got out and the trading volume in the day or two before the announcement got very high. And they failed to issue an 8K when they realized that the cat was out of the bag on that. And it was their own negligence on the announcement that triggered the awareness in the market. So the question is, did anyone who traded on that actually break a securities law? Because the company was sloppy with its disclosure. And I think that, you know, if charges were brought against anybody, they would be very hard charges to stick. And there would be a lot of affirmative defense available for them. I mean, I'm not an attorney, um, and I would love to find a security lawyer just to ask them that because I just, I've never seen such a sloppy disclosure before that gave so much of an opening to people who happened to be in the right place in the right time to hear it. It's funny you bring that up because I was seeing the same thing. I'm like, wait, I saw this news on Monday. Why is this now? Like, this is a huge deal. Why is this now only really taking market effect on Wednesday? This doesn't right. make any sense. Well, these guys were probably so excited. They just couldn't believe their luck that they had to go out and talk about it. They didn't think about full disclosure or anything, filings with the SEC. They were just excited. But, you know, I, I've, I've had some experience with insider trading. I mean, not, I don't mean I've been charged, but I mean, I talk to my lawyer a lot, a lot about what's legitimate and what's not. And, um, you know, I think if someone, if someone heard someone from Kodak in a public space, like a meeting, or read the local newspaper, they're, they're not inside the trading at all. It's like if you, if you saw uh, Musk's tweet about, uh, you know, we're going to a 800, whatever it is, $8,000 or something, you know, you're not, and you traded on that. That was yeah. a, it, it wasn't a, a, it wasn't a formal disclosure but it was public, so. Yeah, but right. don't, but don't you need to have like some sort of reg FD where you publicly say, I'm going to now release my news via this way. Well, yeah, people at least they, that's what they screen. should have done, but they told some local reporters, I guess early, and I guess a local reporter called some fund managers asking for comment. And I mean, if you're getting a call from a reporter asking for comment about material non-public news that has been, that has not well, been properly disclosed yet, I, what, you know, and then you trade yeah, on what it. Do you do? No, no, that's different. That's different. I was talking about people who, who were at a meeting and heard someone say something yeah. or no, read the newspaper the next morning and put two and two together. 
This is yeah, a question for Matt Levine, for sure. If you oh, guys, yeah. You know. I mean, if someone called me and said, hey, I'm doing a story on, um, you know, New Newmont's acquiring Ajax Exploration tomorrow morning. Um, what do you think about it? I can't go out and buy Ajax, obviously. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. But just to just to your point, Stephen, you know, you said you're a sort of libertarian. I mean, I'm I'm hardcore libertarian. I'm sort of anarchist. There's there's a huge difference between crony capitalism and free markets. So Absolutely. we've got to make. I just want to make that point. Well, and you I think that yeah, that that's where the issue comes in with people who are a little less educated about what capitalism is all about. That if they're a little naive about it and they see these things happen, and you know it happens under every administration, right? And that actually degrades the idea of capitalism itself because oh, sure. this is not capitalism. It's not. It's not bottom-up, fundamental type, you know, survival of the fittest type of thing. And it's 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 sad. It's disgusting, and it it degrades the long-term idea of the system in and of itself. And sure. yeah, you know, I just hate things like that. I, I hate it. And it's, but I'd also uh, do an analogy with, um, you know, the wealth gap at the moment. My, my, when I came to this country, which was a long time ago, 50 years ago, whatever it was, um, I found most people in the United States did not resent other people being wealthy. Most people either respected, enjoyed, congratulated, other people who had wealth, whether it was from an invention, whether it was luck, you know, an oil well in your garden, people would be happy for you, which was different from England at the time. In England, people resented anyone who had wealth. You know, it, everybody was suspicious of anyone wealthy unless they had inherited it. Um, and that's not a joke, that's serious, because if you're the 14th crazy, yeah. Duke, you inherited it, it's okay. But, but everyone else, you didn't deserve it. Um, and and my, my sense is that people generally have this gut feeling that if people are wealthy and did something or were lucky, they don't mind that. But what they do resent very, very much is people getting wealthy of, of government um, interference, Connections. Um, so, so after yeah. 2008, when you had the Federal Reserve bail out the big banks, but do nothing for Main Street, people truly resented that. And that's why, that's why the wealth gap today is such a huge issue, I think. Nobody resents, nobody, nobody I know of, nobody is, uh, you know, is critical of Steve Jobs being wealthy. Or of I don't I don't follow American football, but name a big football quarterback or whatever. No, nobody resents these people having a lot of money. Nobody resents Steve Jobs having money. Nobody resents, um, you know, that sort of thing. They do resent people getting wealthy through you know backdoor deals. That's for sure. No, no, that don't don't apologize. I don't think you'll get. I don't think you'll get a, a, a anybody disagreeing with you. I think we can all. I think I don't want to speak for everybody, but at least for me personally, I resent people that get <laughs> wealthy that way. Right. Absolutely. Right. I don't. I don't think that's something that's different throughout our human history. It's an interesting it thing to think about how we are in the midst right now of one of the largest experiments ever in emergency government 
support going direct to consumers and being targeted directly at consumers who are most vulnerable and most affected by current circumstances. The idea that we have enhanced unemployment benefits of greater than the minimum wage for a short period of time and that we have given once and probably twice soon $1,200 checks to most Americans and that we're essentially distributing huge amounts of money to people who are economically vulnerable and who have a high pro marginal propensity to consume because of that is going to be a really interesting A-B test versus the way that we responded to the last crisis. And I think there's a lot of historical data and there's gonna be a lot of learning about how to respond to an economic crisis that comes out of the very stark comparison that we have between 2008 and 2009 and now 2020. 100%, good point, good point. I think that's a good place to end it. Does ever, so uh, I think with that, let's uh, everybody give your, you know, maybe a couple final thoughts and then where everybody can go and uh, find more information about you and follow you on social media. And, you know, uh, Adrian still doesn't have a Twitter, so we'll go with Adrian first because I'll have the, the, the shortest uh, sign off here. Hey, I've got a website. You got a website? That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, you got the website. Uh, it's <laughs> www.adriandayassetmanagement.com. Um, yeah, got it. That no, that is your website. There we go. Yep. All right. So, so Alex, and, and where can people go and find more information about you and uh, follow you on social media? Sure. My firm is Stage Venture Partners. That's uh, stagevp.com. And on social media, I am at Alex Rubelkava on Twitter. And my firm Twitter is at SageVP. Very good. Steven? This is an opportunity for someone to create a Twitter account for Adrian. I know. There's going to be thoughts. There's going to be a lot of Adrian Day troll accounts, I feel Without like. Without his you know, knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> Adrian, I could set up a bot pretty easily to, uh, to impersonate you. Well, do you know up until last year, the SEC the SEC said that any tweet from a registered investment advisor had to include disclosures. Well, there isn't enough room in a tweet for disclosures. Can't so, you just put it in your profile? Oh, uh, it's too complicated. Okay, so past retweets. No, no, I mean the regs are too complicated. Sorry? Past retweets are not indicative of future retweets? <laughs> like well now we have 280 characters also but um uh yeah you can find me twitter as well steven underscore keel it's steven with a v keel k-i-e-l uh arquitos.com a-r-q-u-i-t-o-s and willowoakfunds.com and in fact i think this is going to go live on friday august 7th and so we'll be releasing uh, Enterprise Diversified, the company that I'm a chairman of, will be releasing our results there. So um, you can check that out as well. Very cool. Well, uh, you can follow us on uh, youtube.com slash SNNWire. That's where you'll find the Investors Roundtable feed. Go in, click subscribe, and uh, get notified every time a new episode is out. And I'd like to thank uh, our non-sponsor, Juneshine, for helping me celebrate the end of my conference. So uh, I appreciate that. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And I'd like to thank everybody joining us today. This was a lot of fun as always. And uh, I'm sure I'll see you guys all soon.
Thank you, Bobby. Thank, yeah. Thank Asteroid lassoing. Who would have thought? Asteroid lassoing. <laughs> oh, this is me. I'm in the barrel now, too. There we go. All right. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you.